across the city and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm going to read you the menu. It's fantastic. So we get better flavour because of the fen soil. I've drunk more beer since I came here and bought my two barrels than I've ever done in my life before, I think. I shouldn't have said almonds. They don't make it from almonds. <laughs> so you've got this big sticky mess when you start off. Pizza pot pies. My wife's cakes are selling up hot cakes. Brilliant, thank you. The time is right for this sort of thing. Food is everything. Cambridge is right for this sort of thing. What's it like? <laughs> Good afternoon and welcome to our fortnightly look at the Cambridge area food and drink scene. I am Matt Bentman, Alan Alder is away today, but here is Sue Bailey to give us a taste of what's on. We visit some new places today, a new shop in Hazlingfield, the Little Pantry, that's already very much part of the community. I'm going to get a, a board up so that I can ask for people's opinions and what things they might like, maybe that we've not got, and that I can think about maybe getting in for them. So we'll be doing that again in the next couple of months. That'll be going up on the walls. There's a new wine emporium in Devonshire Road. My motto is Adventures in Wine. So Amphora, Adventures in Wine. I want people to discover what they really enjoy. And with a big increase in energy prices underway, we talked to Catherine Phipps about how using her new book, Modern Pressure Cooking, will reduce our energy and water bills. Using a pressure cooker will cut down the cooking time by about 70%. I always say fuel, time, money, and then the fourth thing, which is less ob obvious, is water. So you can cook things in a minuscule amount of water. And with lots of Cambridge food news too. And at the end of the programme, a lot of job vacancies. So let's begin with a new food shop in Hazlingfield, which is showing just what a community shop can provide for both local residents and people out walking or cycling. Sue visited last week. I'm speaking to Caroline House, the owner with her partner, Claire, of The Little Pantry. Lovely and bright. It's been totally redesigned and people may remember it under a previous incarnation. But The Little Pantry has really started only this year and in January. It all got started through um, an idea I had many years ago and I'd always wanted to do something like this. So I took the ball by the horns and I've actually stepped into it. Hopefully it'll go forward and upwards, which it is doing at the moment. It's fantastic because, again, you've got wines here, lots of fresh produce, eggs, some dried produce, a deli counter. Yes, you've yes. got lots going, haven't you? We have. We've got a lot going on. We've got some lovely breads coming in from local places in Cambridge. Stir provide our sourdough for us, which is really lovely. We've got eggs, that uh, scotch eggs that Kitch Hen provide from us, again from Cambridge, which are made from a very small place, which is lovely. We're supporting each other, which is great. We try and do lots of our own cooking as well. We have our own sausage rolls, which is quite funny because we've actually made just over 2,000 in six weeks. It's it's quite funny. I think it's quite hilarious, but it's um, amazing just how fast they go out the door. Gosh, so six weeks is all you've been going for? Yes, we're just yeah, we're just ahead of starting our seventh week this week. So, and of course we've got Mother's Day coming up, yep. Easter, all these lovely things to plan for. Yes, it is. It's um, a bit of a shame, really, because I needed to really order much earlier in the year. But we're doing all right. We've got some lovely jute bags that we're hoping to fill with some goodies.
cookies for mums and um, some bubbly and some lovely chocolates. We have some beautiful bouquets of flowers in for the mums and we've got some wonderful cards. So we're hoping that we can cover Mother's Day quite well. Easter coming up, we've got some beautiful biscuits for the children. We've got, oh, and that's another thing we had in, which is lovely for the children. We've got some gingerbread ladies in saying, love you, mum, with bows on. So they're really nice. And we've got some lovely little cookery books and candles. I think a really nice small gift that even the children could buy for their mums as we're hopefully getting there. You obviously have a, a good following locally, but do you feel that people come out of Cambridge or Barton or local yes, villages? Yes, we, we do get... I, I tell you, it's quite strange because we actually get a lot of people that walk, that do a lot of walking. We've had people that have been out when it's been a lovely weekend that have walked from Cambridge through Grantchester all the way through and come here. I think that's really nice to know that Cambridge know we're around, but now it's really picked up. That's what our intention are to carry it forward and you have a customer so. so going back to sort of plans for the future you've got a nice bit of outside space there what are you thinking of doing with this well at the moment we actually have our tables and chairs outside for our customers that come in and buy lunch and they want to go and sit outside and eat because we're actually not a cafe but i am thinking of getting some form of canopy which will probably be a sale like a bright orange sale to go with the color scheme and also we're going to get some lovely plants out outside and also we'd like to get some sort of really proper cycle storage for the local people so that they can put their cycles and and know they're safe and lock them in but we do have a lot of cyclists here because of Barrington Hill obviously the only hill the only (laughs) hill in Cambridge so yeah we do have a lot and I'm looking to put us on one of their sites on the internet they've got a special site which they use apparently to um, stop for tea and coffee and cakes and things so I'm about to do that find out and put that on their their site so that they know we're here too and we're open now and ready to go And, and we're doing a lot of catering for um, companies and we're doing outside catering now as well. That's picked up for us. And considering we've only been going six weeks, we've got uh, we've done one big, big catering. It was over 200 people and for two of us it was a lot. But we managed it. And then we've got another couple coming up in the next month. We do uh, lunches for companies. So it's we're gradually getting there. It's slowly but steady. And starting in January, it's a brave time to start a new well, business. Well, it was, yes, it was. It was uh, quite worrying and quite daunting, actually, at first. I did want to start so much before Christmas, but unfortunately with builders it was So I had to take the opportunity and just plunge in and do it. But actually, it wasn't that bad. January wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. And in fact, it it did creep up in January too. So we're busy most of the time. We like tick over days like Tuesdays, which are just a funny day for us. But then once we hit Wednesday, it just picks up and that's it. We're off again for the rest of the week. How do people find out more? Do you have a website? We have a website. Instagram, we're on Instagram, yes. And you have local suppliers as well, don't you? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. The lady from um, the village makes our cakes for us and um, she's amazing. So she brings down these beautiful ghettos and if you look on our Instagram, you'll see them. They're just amazing. There's a lemon curd and a chocolate ganache and then she does an almond cake and um, she does a beautiful banana and raspberry cake. So really yum. And we have scotch eggs from Kitch Hen, which is Cambridge. Breads from Cambridge, one of the local people in Cambridge. Um, yeah, we do have local suppliers. We get our meat from a butcher's in Shelford. 
so he delivers to us every day. We also get our pork pies and scotch eggs, extra scotch eggs we have to buy by the end of the week. And we get them from Leeches, which is local. Of course. So, it, you know, we try and um, look around and, and not just go too far afield for the sake of it. Yes. We try to yes. buy locally if we can. All our vegetables are bought locally. We get them from Meldreff. Mm-hmm. So they deliver them every day, fresh every day. So okay. people can, if they want, they can ring us if there's something specific they want. Mm-hmm. We can order it that day and get it in for them the next day. Oh, that's so, so Which nice, is really nice. It? Yes, we had a customer in today. She wanted some lamb chops for tomorrow specifically. So we'll order them tonight and they'll be fresh in, in the morning for her. Oh, perfect. So it's quite nice like that. That yeah. is really nice. So you're providing a lovely local yes, service as yeah. well. So, yeah, we try and help everybody. I'm going to get a, a board up so that I can ask for people's opinions and what things they might like, maybe that we've not got, and that I can think about maybe getting in for them. So we'll be doing that again in the next couple of months. That'll be going up on the wall. So I'm hoping that people will realise they can talk to us and we can help them in any way we can. Thank I you. wish you all success with the little Thank pantry. You. It's lovely. Great future ahead, I hope. I hope so too. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thanks so much. The Little Pantry is open from 9 until 4.30 Monday to Friday and 9 to 4 on Saturdays. It's at 21 Church Street. They're planning to open on Sundays during the summer months too. And they're active on social media. Their Instagram account is updated daily with what's new in and the website is littlepantry.co.uk. Okay, let's move on to our first news section now, beginning with Vandalile, which becomes... Vandalile next week. If the difference in my pronunciation is a little subtle, it's because V-A-N Delisle becomes V-I-N Delisle. That is, it becomes a wine bar. All bookable tables have been booked, but there are walk-ins available every night. That's this coming Wednesday, the 16th of March to Friday from 5pm and also Saturday from noon. On the 24th of March at Pint Shop in Pease Hill, there's a meat and beer tasting event featuring meat from Malloy's. There will be five courses and each course will be introduced by Mikey from Malloy's with a Pint Shop beer guru to talk about the matched beer. The dessert sounds extraordinary. It's Jack's Gelato Wagyu ice cream. The cost is £76 per person and you can book via the Pint Shop website. And on the 30th of March, there is a special tasting menu at the wine rooms in Hills Road. The wines are from Tuscan winemakers the Antinori family, who have been making wine for 637 years. Their ambassador will be in attendance to talk about the wines, and there is a five-course meal designed by Liz Young. Arrival is from 6.30 for a 7pm start, and is limited to 21 places. The cost is £140 per person, and you can book via the Wine Rooms website. Roberto's Deli has now opened in St Neots. If you've been to his stall on Cambridge Market, you'll know what good quality food he sells, including what Alan says is the best soft goat's cheese ever. Roberto will be keeping his stall at Cambridge Market open every day except Friday. Corinne Payet of Gourmandise has a Cook for Ukraine Day on the 19th of March. That's from 10am until 2pm. The class is on Zoom and it's free in return for a donation to the UNICEF Ukraine Appeal. Corinne will teach how to make a flamkouche and an apple blueberry frangipan galette and you can contact her via social media. On Wednesday, 16th of March, food and travel writer Caroline Eden is talking to fellow food writers Olya Hercules from Ukraine and Alyssa Timoshkina from Russia at an evening called Food and Peace Together for Ukraine. All proceeds, including book sales, will go to Cook for Ukraine. Tickets are £20 and takes place in Pushkin House at 5A Bloomsbury Square in London. A food and drink reception is included in the price. Bookings can be made via the Pushkin House website and are selling out quickly. 
And in Meadows in Eltisley Avenue, they have copies of Manushka by Olia Hercules and Sultan Time by Elisa Timoshkina for sale. Meadows is donating £10 from the sale of each book to the Cook for Ukraine appeal. Restaurant 22 is open on Tuesday 22nd of March for dinner, with all profits going to UNICEF as part of the Cook for Ukraine appeal. It's £150 per person, and that brings you a full-tasting menu with a flight of wines, and there's a choice of wine or soft drinks. And well done to Thorn Wines, who are donating the wine, and to the staff of Restaurant 22 for volunteering to work on their days off. To book and for more information, email alex at restaurant22.co.uk. And that takes us to the end of this news section. We've more later, including a talk with local chef Stephen Saunders, who has a great suggestion for both the hospitality crisis and the plight of Ukrainian refugees coming to the UK. As we all know, inflation is currently high and set to increase further. One of the biggest price increases is on electricity and gas, with the average domestic fuel bill possibly trebling by the end of the year. Catherine Phipps' new book is just what we need to help us reduce these bills. It's called Modern Pressure Cooking, and Alan spoke with Catherine and Quadrille's Managing Director, Cambridge resident Sarah Lavelle, about it last week. From your book, it's very evident that you use pressure cookers every day. And I'm wondering what you see as the the benefits of them. Two things. First of all, you're going to save fuel and therefore money because using a pressure cooker will cut down cooking time by about 70%. With some of the longer recipes, some of that is actually done off the heat as well. So that's the main thing, but also time. I always say fuel, time, money. And then the fourth thing, which is less obvious, is water. Because as you're cooking in a sealed pot, there's very little evaporation. So you can cook things in a minuscule amount of water compared to how you would do it conventionally. What about the quality of what you're cooking? What about, say, vegetables? I think a lot of people might have thoughts that they'd all turn into a mush or something like that. I know, and that is a cook's issue as opposed to a pressure cooker issue, I'm afraid. You know, a decade ago, when my first pressure cooker book came out, I was getting a lot of pushback on vegetables. People saying, oh, they're going to overcook, they're going to be grey and green, mushy, mossy, kind of horrible looking things. You know, that kind of 1970s image of everything cooked to a sludge or, you know, putting your Brussels sprouts on in November for your Christmas dinner. It had that kind of reputation, but it actually could not be further from the truth. I have a very, very simple method for cooking them in the pressure cooker, which I can adapt to the steaming, boiling, sauteing, roasting, braising. And with a lot of green vegetables, for instance, whatever fat you want to use, a slick of liquid of any sort, put them in, sear them if you want to do an approximation of roasting, tiny bit of water, bring it up to pressure at speed when there's a lot of hissing because you're generating steam, remove it from the heat immediately, release the pressure and they're done in literally a couple of minutes. And they are green and they are al dente and they look fresh and beautiful. Also, you've preserved a lot of the nutrients as well. So there's quite a few myths around pressure cooker, and that is one I'm very, very keen to dispel. Not purely because I think the method is so good it is, but also because it's just one of those hidden benefits. A lot of people would not think of using their pressure cooker for side dishes, 
for cooking their greens as part of their evening meal. And I think so many people would automatically reach for a saucepan, put X amount of water or boiled water in, wait for it to come up to the boil, add the vegetables. You're wasting so much fuel and water when you do that. Here you're saving across the board and I often think the results are much better. And what amazed me about the book was the the variety of of methods that uh, you can use, like the braising and the roasting you've just mentioned. I was astonished, and I think it was Sarah who mentioned it to me originally, that you can make cakes in a pressure cooker. I mean, that just seemed to me to be an impossibility of physics. I just assumed that the pressure of the pressure cooker would prevent the cakes rising. With certain cakes and puddings, you do cook them off pressure to start with to give the raising agents a chance to work. So 10, 15 minutes with some of them. But I've done quite a bit of experimentation around this and it's not always necessary. Say you're making a steamed pudding, you know, like a steamed treacle sponge or something. Now, you do that on a stovetop in a steamer over water and you still get a lovely brown crust and you still get the rising. So all you're doing in a pressure cooker is souping that up a bit. You know, if it works for a pudding, of course it makes <laughs> sense that it would also work for a cake. Yeah, anyway, it's an inspiring book. And Sarah, how's that, has it inspired you to use a pressure cooker? Yeah, it has. I mean, just when I was, you know, reading through the pages, I was thinking, I have, I can't believe I haven't got a pressure cooker. And I think Catherine's fairly appalled that it's taken me this long <laughs> to get Isn't one. You did my first book as well, or, or published <laughs> my first book, which was, I, yeah. I know, I've just been meaning to, but this book really, really inspired me for all the, the reasons Catherine's already mentioned in terms of kind of environmental considerations and saving money and saving time. So yes, I invested and I'm complete convert. <laughs> I'm going to make a bolognese in it later. I've been poaching whole chickens in it. I braised shallots. I've made beef bourguignon. I've done caramelised onions. I've done, yeah, veg. I think about the only thing I haven't tried so far is the famous pressure cooker risotto, actually. Catherine, I, I was surprised. I mean, there are lots of things in the book that surprised me, but another one was that is the use of pressure cookers is very common in places like South America and India. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's how they came on my radar initially, actually, because I, like a lot of people, had kind of dismissed them um, for, you know, overcooked vegetables, as we've already talked about, overcooked meat, all of that kind of thing. So my sister-in-law is Brazilian. She showed me how to cook a very simple version of the national dish feijoada. So it's black beans and cuts of meat and everything. And she had a bag of dried black beans and some sausages, bacon, few aromatics. And the meal was on the table in just over half an hour. And I could not believe this. And we talked around this quite a lot. And what it came down to was the fact that in hot climate countries where things like beans, pulses, et cetera, are used on a daily basis, rice is used on a daily basis, and there isn't always the means to store them well once they're cooked. It makes sense that people have large quantities dried and cook small quantities on a daily basis so they don't have to then refrigerate them or whatever. So she was saying that throughout her childhood, 
just like most households she knew, her mum would get home from work. The first thing that would happen is the pressure cooker would go on with the beans in for that night's dinner. My um, husband's family are from the Indian subcontinent and it's exactly the same story there with lentils and beans. And they do cook them extremely well and extremely fast. Yeah, well, I, I remember noticing the length of time it takes to cook borlotti beans, which I think you said yeah. was could be two hours if you haven't soaked them initially and I think something like seven minutes in a pressure cooker so there's the saving on time and and energy is is fantastic and presumably in a in a warmer climb um you wouldn't want to have the you know the heat going for as long anyway so it helps keep the kitchen a bit cooler yeah it's it's a really good point I mean a lot of people think of pressure cookers as being about winter food because they do all the casseroles and curries and soups and everything else so well but they're invaluable in the summer because as Sarah just said they keep the kitchen cooler because the heat source isn't on for as long and they're so useful for cooking elements of things you know elements that you might put into a salad like beans or grains or new potatoes or anything really so yeah invaluable so in writing this book Catherine you must have done a lot of research a lot of experimentation Yes, masses. I've run to multiple versions of things many, many times. So so what I normally do is, first of all, I try to see how I can shave off as much time as possible to make the process as efficient as possible. But also there's a lot of looking at conventional recipes and working out whether they can be done as well, if not better, in a pressure cooker. I don't like cooking things in a pressure cooker that do not taste as good as if I'd done them conventionally. That doesn't happen very often. And I often do get people asking me, oh, can I do X, Y, Z in a pressure cooker? And sometimes it's something I haven't thought about and I go away and think about it and work it out. The dal makhani, black urad bean recipe, really popular one at the moment. It's been having a bit of a resurgence because of Dishoom and wherever, I think. Um, That took me about half a dozen attempts to get right bit of trial and error and then refinement i think sometimes the ones that take the longest to work out end up being sometimes the most useful and sarah it's a big book so as a publisher you've obviously got confidence that people are going to turn to pressure cooking yeah well when we first talked about it i think we wanted it to well in fact we were going to call it the pressure cooker bible because we wanted it to be the most comprehensive book on the subject on the market. And then I think also because I, maybe we didn't want to just say, well, this is the one book because we might do we might do another one, you know. <laughs> we decided that <laughs> modern pressure cooking was a kind of nicer, more contemporary take on it. But yeah, I mean, I think it ended up being a little bit longer than we originally planned in terms of pages just because Catherine you know has got so much to go in there and it's all so good I I do like to give people value for money I think and and I think that's also why I like to give as many variations in my recipes as possible it's all about kind of setting parameters and teaching people how they can be flexible within those parameters so giving them suggestions and and I'm hoping that it will also help people understand how to convert their conventional recipes from some of their favourite cookbooks and, you know, their favourite dishes. 
I do like recipes to be flexible. And I just wanted people to understand how they can use the book, um, how they can use the recipes to springboard into other things. That's really quite important to me, actually. Have, have you got any favourite recipes from it? There are a lot I really love. I mean, it is the way I cook. I mean, I, you know, you said I do. I use my pressure cooker every day. I do. I use it multiple times a day, actually. There's very rarely a day when it's not used at least two or three times. Some of the really simple things. So, for instance, I think maybe the very first recipe is for a tomato soup. This, this is a book for people who want to cook, and it's a, it, it makes moving away from processed and ultra-processed food much more much easier for people, and, and that's part of what I wanted to do. I want to write a cookery book for people who want to cook but don't always have the time, and this will help them find the time. So things like that tomato soup. I mean, most people love tin tomato soup, but this one is literally roughly chopped vegetables, the tomatoes, a big wadge of butter, and it's cooked for five minutes and pureed. And it's absolutely unbelievably good. I just, I shouldn't say that about my own recipes, <laughs> but I really love it. And also because it has good pedigree. I mean, it's based on the um, all in the, the whole onion method that Marcella Hazan use, uses for tomato sauce. A lot of them struck me, actually. I mean, Things like the Korean-style braised ribs just look fantastic. Yeah. But, but also some of the um, the crispy aromatic duck. Uh, but also yeah. the creme caramel just looks fantastic. Things that have really been a revelation for me are like poaching a whole chicken and you literally just, you know, you bring it to high pressure and then you take it off the heat and that's it. That's a sort of, you know, leave it and that's a whole chicken poach. And then after you've used the, you know, the chicken meat you put put the carcass back in and it makes the best stock ever i mean i would never return to boiling up a chicken carcass for you know hours on top of the stove it's just so much but you can do it's, it's sort of it's like stock is supposed to be it's full of flavor and it's really thick um and gelatinous you get a really good jelly don't you you do and really i was amazed good. honestly it made me realize how i've been doing stock wrong <laughs> all these years i did wonder whether it was we could just mention that if you've got an instant pot, then the recipes mm. in the book are all suitable for an instant pot as well. What, what's yeah. an instant pot? It's an electric version and has become massively popular in recent years. So yes, it's a sort of, you have it on a work surface and it's plug in and it has various functions as well as pressure cooker. It does, does it do slow cooker as well? And it make, makes yogurt and... yeah. And, and you can now get one, which I find quite useful, actually. You can now get one with an air dryer lid. So, for instance, some of the dishes, and I, I try to refer to this going through. I don't think I managed with all of them, but anything that you want to brown, where you'd put it under a grill or in the oven, you know, even a pasta bake or anything like that, I would put on the air fryer lid instead if I was doing it in electric pressure cooker. So again, you're not heating up your oven or grill yet again. Right, thanks very much, Catherine and, and Sarah as well. 
The name of the book again is Modern Pressure Cooking. It's available on the 31st of March and the time savings, as Alan says, are extraordinary, as is the variety of foods that can be pressure cooked. Pot roast chicken with only 15 minutes on the gas, French onion soup in two minutes, Korean style braised pork ribs, 30 to 45 minutes, cardamom rice pudding, 15 minutes, mac and cheese, five minutes. Big savings on time and energy. Now, we'll be back in two minutes with a visit to the new Wine Emporium on Devonshire Road and a special message from a local chef. More food news and jobs too. Don't go away. Cambridge 105 Radio. On the Big Band Show this week, my featured band of the week is the Len Phillips or LP Swing Orchestra. We chat to their band leader Joe Pettit about what the band's been up to and we play tracks from the brand new album from Abbey Road with singer Matt Ford. So join me, John Hammond, for the Big Band Show, Sunday night at 7 here on Cambridge 105 Radio. Just your average night. Fraser's upstairs gaming online with his mates. Sophie's streaming her favourite tunes in her bedroom. Mum's downloading the latest drama box set. And Dad's liking kitten videos on his phone. But this isn't your average night. Thanks to City Fibre's full fibre network, everyone's gaming, streaming and scrolling at breakneck speed. Join Cambridge's gigabit revolution today. Head to cityfibre.com slash Cambridge 105. CKLG Accountants are a friendly team of accountants and tax advisors with big firm expertise. I'm Lawrence, Director of CKLG, responsible for business services. We understand that running a successful business brings many challenges. Our experienced business services team provide a bespoke service and offer professional advice at every stage of your business journey, allowing you the freedom to focus more on what you do best. To find out more, call us on Cambridge 810100 to arrange an initial chat with one of our specialists or visit our website cklg.co.uk cklg accountants your partner in business your partner in life cambridge 105 radio welcome back to flavor in our last episode we spoke to some ex-chefs about the crisis in the hospitality industry they told us the reasons why so many were leaving they could get the same pay for less stressful work elsewhere they could strike out independently as street food traders, host pop-up dining events, be private chefs, be their own boss, choose their own hours, or go agency and get the same pay and no responsibility. The work-life balance in chefing is horribly weighted to the work side, and COVID has afforded a lot of people and a lot of chefs the chance to assess what they want from their lives. That's why our job section at the end of the programme is so full these days. Anyway... At the time, we couldn't really find a solution to the problem. But yesterday, I spoke to Chef Stephen Saunders of the Willow Tree in Bourne, and he has an idea that could work really well, an idea that he wants others in the hospitality industry to listen to and to contact him about, because this benefits everybody involved. Here's Stephen. Well, I've been a chef for 45 years. I'm old now. I've had restaurants since I was in my early 20s. Went to Spain and opened restaurants there, they were very successful. I mean, on one week, we won Best Restaurant in Spain in 2021. The following week, we were closed down due to COVID. I'd just taken all the staff out and celebrated. It never really reopened because, unfortunately, we didn't get much support from the Spanish government. People moaned about the UK, but they did compensate. And, and, and also, they had furlough, which we didn't have in Spain. So we didn't get a choice. I had to come home. 
when I got back, I um, looked for opportunities and eventually found the willow tree in Bourne. It's a beautiful place. Shana's an old friend. I've known Shana for 12 years or maybe more. We thrashed out a deal. When I took over, we had three or four chefs. As soon as I was in the kitchen, they left. No, I don't, I don't mean that detrimentally. But of course, I had my way, my structure, my food. I don't want to do anybody else's food. And trying to find chefs is impossible nowadays. And of course, when you do find them, not only have they got other offers, but they're being offered more and more money wherever they go. So the whole thing is becoming an absolute nightmare for hospitality. We cannot find chefs. And it isn't just chefs, actually. It's kitchen porters, the people that do the washing up. It's waiters and waitresses as well. It's difficult. And there's so much competition. You know, the place down the road might offer. It's like that for all the hospitality in the country, for sure. So we're all suffering with a massive shortage. And you can see that because some of the places, they may only open the weekends, Others have changed dimensions and tactics. For example, one that I'm involved in is now just doing weddings and doesn't do the restaurant anymore. We're still going as, as an operation five days a week, but we're struggling and we're struggling now. I've got two chefs in the kitchen today and I should have four in there. The, the amount of work they have to do and the weekends and, the, you know, I want them at Christmas and stuff like that. And that's what a COVID, unfortunately, brought is a new life and people didn't actually want to work as much. When they realised they were getting all this time off, they kind of reinvented themselves. So we were sitting, scratching our heads, thinking, what can we do? And then the war struck and we looked at each other and said, do you know what? We could take in refugees here at the Willow Tree. We could take a family. Maybe we could take two. We've got rooms upstairs. They're empty. We need staff. We need chefs. We need kitchen porters. And I can train them. It doesn't matter to me if they haven't actually got a background. We can give them that training. We can offer them jobs. We can offer them salaries, home security. And then as we thought about it, what if we helped other people, other hospitality operations, other hotels, other restaurants, other pubs, and bring in more families and more people? And then I put it to a friend of mine, Sir David Wright, who has been in politics as longer than I've been in, in cooking. And I said, well, look, David, I need some contacts in government. He put me in touch with the Home Office and the, the Foreign Secretary. And I've started to discuss the possibilities, if you like, of bringing in some refugees to the UK, giving them jobs, finding them accommodation. Because the, the reason it works for hospitality is because most hotels can provide accommodation for refugees. We've got jobs. We all have. So I put it to them and they said, well, how many are you looking at? And I said, about 100. So 100 families. You know, unfortunately, we have some conditions and they started talking about the red tape, which they don't call red tape, obviously. The difficulties, the complications, the data that they need on these personnel that the refugees have to have it has to be in English and not in Ukraine. And this paperwork and the passport and the details on the passports. And I just said, hang on, hang, stop, stop, stop. Look, just for a minute, because I'm getting emotional. OK, mm. just for a minute, think about it. Your house has just been blown up. You've ran away. You're running down the street. Did you bring your passport? Did you bring any paperwork? Of course you didn't. I said, we have to get round that. They've said, well, we can't waive it because we don't want Russian spies in for you. I said, look, listen, there's other ways. Let me think about it. I'll come back to you. Went back to David again. David said, have you tried contacting Ordare International? They do security checks on individuals. I contacted them. They will do security checks on all the refugees that we're bringing in. Okay. Of course it costs money, but I'm saying... We'll pay for it because we're getting sponsorship from the hotels. The hotels will have to pay to fly the refugees over. 
that's part of their contract, which we're issuing. So we've developed this into a full-time scheme, which we've called the Odessa Project, because Odessa's lovely, and I've been many times, with beautiful hotels and beautiful beaches and beautiful people. I want to go over and speak to the refugees myself. And the reason I want that is because I'm a very personal person. I'm in hospitality. I'm good with people. I'm a very sensitive man. I haven't been able to sleep much during this crisis, and I don't mind admitting I have cried a lot. And you can hear it in my voice. I'm emotional now as I'm talking to you. And I've cried because I don't see what I can do to make a difference. Yet I should be able to make a difference. So I went back again to the Home Office and said, look, I can do more than 150. I've put something on Facebook. I've had 200 people contact me. They're all hoteliers. They've all got accommodation. They've all got jobs. I think I can probably take 250, 300 families. So they've said, well, look, if you can bring in a minimum of that amount, we might be able to do the waivers. And if you can do the security checks on the individuals and pay for it, then we can help. I'm interested in the families, in their security, their safety, and I'm interested in making sure they've got jobs. And I'm also interested, and I'm being honest with you, in the hospitality business, because it's my life, it's all of my life, Mm. because we're all on the floor. We do not have enough staff to operate. I don't have the green light from the government at the moment. The green light means that I've got the passes, I've got the visas, I can get them through border control, then we're on. But if I go over there and say, look, I promise you, I can get you jobs, I can get you money, I can give you homes, I can do this, I can do that. I can fly you over there, it'll all be paid for. And then I don't get the passes, then how am I going to look? So I cannot go over there and promise anything unless it's 100% solid. And so I've gone back again to government today, I've been speaking to the Home Office today and said, look, when do you think I can get something that I can, I can show them that I can get them through the border? And they've said, contact me again on Wednesday, and maybe we can do something. So I'm, I'm close. Um, so David Wright has been amazing. Without him and his contacts, we wouldn't be so far forwards. There's no charity here. We're not looking for any support. We've got the support from the hospitality industry, not just hotels, restaurants, bars, clubs. We've got that already. So they're not bringing in refugees and having to pay to have them here. They're looking after themselves, and then they're working and they're getting paid. So the government liked that idea. They want me to come up with a figure that's realistic, that we can actually house 200, whatever it is, and absolutely guarantee that. And so the idea of reaching out to the press is to say, look, I need your support. Anybody that's in hospitality, anybody that's in the food business that can help, because you probably will need and you do need staff, and I can provide that. But I need your support to bring the people over to say, I can absolutely guarantee and sign a contract with us that we will take on two, three, four, or even one. I mean, it depends on, you know, we don't want to break up families. So we're looking at trying to keep families together. But the idea is that once I've got those contracts signed, then I can go back to government and say, I have an absolute guarantee. I've got 100 operations here that will take staff and each um, operation will take four. Then that's 400 refugees straight into work. They seem quite happy with that, but I haven't got that signed up. And so the idea of reaching out to the press, it's about helping people. It's about getting them over here. And it's about helping the hospitality industry, which, as I say, is without question on the floor. We do not have enough staff and they just can command now such high salaries because they know we're all struggling. And that needs to change if this industry is going to continue. I can't just bring in all these people. They then have to be managed. And managed means they're going to need continual support and counselling and 
Shane, my business partner, and I have sat down and we've worked out that we can get counselling from different areas from the from the country. We've she's put it in a spreadsheet, which I don't understand because I'm a chef. I don't see spreadsheets. <laughs> they just they just haze my brain. But what we've tried to do is make sure that in each community we've got a counsellor that can come in and check that they're okay, that their works are right, and that the employer is happy, that the Ukrainian refugees are happy comfortable and are being well looked after so there's a bit of work here it's not as simple as it might sound we just need to get through this red tape it's silly Mm. we understand some of the reasons we've heard from the home office and the foreign secretary that there's risks and security reasons why they need to do these checks but as i said they don't need to be ridiculous about it and what's why are we got to do all these checks and the rest of europe isn't why can they get into czech republic easily why can they get into germany but they can't get into the uk my point to them was my offer's different because I'm not saying let's just bring them in and we don't know who they are. I'm saying I will pay for the security checks. I'll look at the data. Nowadays, it isn't 1940 like it, you know, the, the, the Second World War, where if you had have escaped from your house being blown up and you don't have a passport or the papers, nobody would really even know who you are. There's all this data. Where is all this data then? Why can't we access the data and find out who these people are and get them new passports and get them back their personality because Mm. most of these people have just run away they're not going to stop and say look actually i've got to go back and get my passport when the house has been demolished it's ridiculous and so i'm trying to say to them the government we'll do the security checks i'll take that on board personally we can bring them in we'll pay for the flights we just need to get them through border control once they're through border control we've got jobs and we've got money and we've got accommodation we're not asking you to do anything we're doing it all please just let me do it and that's what makes it unique is because of the fact that we are actually offering a full package and we're offering accommodation we're offering homes and that's because of hospitality because hospitality needs people it needs staff it needs to to have more staff to be able to operate and function properly therefore they are offering accommodation and Hospitality is unique because it has hotels and and it's kind of normal for these places to have accommodation for staff. So we're tapping into that. I'm easy to contact. I'm on email and it's just simply Chef Saunders, spelled S-A-U-N-D-E-R-S, 2020-2020 at gmail.com. And if anybody listening wants to support Shana and I, I mean, Shana's brilliant as a business partner. She's absolutely brilliant. She's the dynamic that I don't have. I have the creative brain. I have enthusiasm and the passion. But she has a brain that can turn this into a business plan and build in the support lines so that when we get them here, they're picked up from an airport, taken to the contract for the hotel that are taking the family is bulletproof there'll be checks on the family checks on the standard of accommodation as well what we're missing is just more people that want to help and then once i've got that i think i can get these passes fairly quickly so we need to act fast and that's why i'm reaching out to you to say please contact me by email i'll talk to you myself once i've got an agreement of so many people i will go back to government and say i've got this all agreed i've got this all rubber stamped I need your support now. I need you to get rid of this damn red tape. I need to waiver some stuff. I need to get them through. I need to get on with the job. Because it isn't just about the refugees, although, you know, obviously our passions are running high. But it's also, as I said, the hospitality industry, which is literally on its knees looking for staff and doesn't have any. So this is a solution. And then we could take that 
model, if you like, that would look after her own business and then spread it to the country, which is also in the same position as I'm in, and help everybody and help the refugees more. Because instead of bringing in one family, we could bring in 300 families. And that's where we are. And it's exciting. I don't sleep much at night. I, I am emotional about it because I can see it's working. And we can expect to see Stephen popping up probably in the national news quite a lot from this point on. Uh, To repeat his words, if you're in hospitality, you know everything that he's talking about. So please get in touch with Stephen by email. His address is chefsaunders2020 at gmail.com. Time for some more local food news. Cambridge Restaurant Week begins on Monday and runs to Friday the 25th of March. Local restaurants and cafes will be serving set menus for £10, £15 and £20 or lunch for £5, that's in cafes only. Examples include a two-course set lunch menu for £20 at the Orator behind the Round Church, a two-course lunch menu at Pint Shop in Peasehill also for £20, a £5 lunch at Café Abantu in Hobson Street and a pizza or pasta and a drink for £10 at Maurizio in Mill Road. A £5 meal deal from Bagel Box on Cambridge Market sets any bagel crisps or drink for five instead of £6.50. There are lots of others too. Check when booking because these offers are usually limited to specific times of day or particular days of the week and some require you to download a voucher. The full list can be found on Love Cambridge website. Good news from Trumpington Meadows. The food vans are back after an absence of two months. South Cambridgeshire District Council have asked that the vans stop using the electricity supply that was installed by the developers to run Christmas tree lights and to arrange a different supply. Now, while that's being done, and it may take some time, the food vans will be using diesel generators, which isn't ideal. Meanwhile, Flavour hears that the Cambridge City Council will not be installing an electricity supply for food vans to use in Clay Farm. And since they can't use diesel there because of complaints, the return of food vans to Clay Farm may take some time too. You've got to wonder whose side our local councils are on. And some not-so-good news from Cambridge Beer Festival. It's been cancelled this year due to lack of marquees and staff. However, there are beer festivals at St Neots on the 17th to 19th of March and Bury St Edmunds on the 14th to 19th June. There's also a festival at the Food Museum in Stowmarket from 30th of June to the 3rd of July. And that rounds off our news for today. Now, here's a new local wine shop and bar with a rather different approach to selling wine too. Sue went along to the opening night. I'm here at Amphora, owned and run by Chong Chong Bo. It's taken over from Binopolis in Devonshire Road, but Amphora is now this lovely, splendid, very attractive new wine emporium. So, John, tell me how you came to get involved. Well, uh, a friend of mine, Betty, invited me to a blind wine tasting event, and prior to that, I always thought the world of wine was a little bit pretentious and impenetrable but then when you remove all the uh, paraphernalia from the wine and and taste it blind you don't get any of that and that's how I first got into wine it developed into an obsession and then a business so here I am running a wine shop uh, uh, about four years after that fateful blind wine tasting Wine is so multidimensional. It's got that intellectual aspect, the hedonistic aspect, the scientific aspect. 
uh, and there's there's endless possibilities. You will never learn everything about wine every time you think you know about wine. Uh, you realize you don't because there's always more to discover, new trends, new producers, new angles. Uh, so it's a it's this never-ending journey, really, and and I think that's what intrigued me so much about wine, and that's how I got into it. And I've just done a blind wine tasting with you, which is absolutely fascinating. Can you talk me through what you've just given me? Well, when new people come to the shop, I'd like to do what I call a wine diagnosis on them. And this means that instead of asking people what they want to drink, I ask them what they, what they, what flavors they feel like, whether uh, they, well, whether they fancy red, white or sparkling, but then whether they prefer something crispy or creamy. Um, and we go from there. I give some samples. You both wanted something crispy and refreshing, something white, and therefore I went with a Sancerre to start with. But then I wanted to explore whether you'd you'd like the influence of oak. So I went to from a Sancerre to a South African barrel-fermented Sauvignon to see whether you preferred that. And since you wanted to go in the other direction, I thought, okay, let's try a Tasmanian Riesling, and you preferred that to the Sancerre. So that's sort of the kind of journey that I want to take people on um, to find that perfect glass of wine that really completes their evening, for instance. Hmm. And now I'm drinking the Tasmanian Riesling, which is absolutely lovely, and it's got a really nice Christmas but a round a rounded flavor to it and it's absolutely lovely and I can see on the shelves you have a lot of different types of wine from different parts of the world so what would you say is perhaps your most interesting and challenging wine for people I'm always getting new wines in I would say that the differentiating region is perhaps Georgia. So I have an amazing Georgian wine supplier and we have, I mean, orange wines become quite fashionable. That is skin contact white wine. Um, usually white wine is made by pressing the juice from the grapes and then fermenting the juice. But what we call orange or amber wine is made by fermenting the grapes on the skins, which means you get something that's a little bit tannic, that has a, some oxidized aromas and characteristics, a bit like oolong tea. And Chateau Svenitsa in, uh, in Georgia produces the best orange wine I think I've ever tasted. So I think my perhaps most challenging, most different wine experience that is still elegant and refined is the Chateau Svenitsa Cazzatelli Covevri, uh, which is fermented in those buried clay vessels and and alluded to in the name of uh, my shop in, in terms of it being called Amphora. So that's a really, really special wine. It's completely clean. It doesn't have any of the funky type characteristics that you might associate with, let's say, a cider. So I think natural wine has perhaps a poor reputation um, in serious wine circles in that it is a little bit too funky. So why pay so much for essentially what is an overpriced cider when you could actually have a superb clean wine that has the flavors of, of an elegant oolong tea um, as well as pure fruit and that is perfectly clear. So I think the Chateau Svenitsa Cazzatelli Covovri is a, a fantastic illustration of what I represent here as a wine shop. Mm. Well, I, I definitely must try it. And tell me, how did you develop your wine skills? Ha have you done various wine courses? 
Well, um, apart from doing the blind tasting sessions with the university every Sunday, I started doing the WSET uh, qualification. So I did the level three. And then after that, I started the diploma. Of course, COVID hit, which was a bit of a hindrance. But I'm currently partway through my diploma with just the big wines of the world exam to go sometime uh, this year. After that, I hope to pursue the Master of Wine. So I would say I'm a Master of Wine in training. Mm. Oh, that's fantastic. There is a nice buzz here tonight, and obviously it's your first night, but um, what are your actual opening hours, and are you running it just to sort of come in and taste and enjoy a little bit because it's a slight wine bar vibe? Absolutely. Uh, It's... My motto is Adventures in Wine. So Amphora, Adventures in Wine. I want people to discover what they really enjoy. And it's not immediately obvious. Uh, I think most wine shops would perhaps ask people, ah, what sort of grape do you like? Do you prefer a Sauvignon Blanc or do you prefer an Oak Chardonnay? Whereas I don't take that approach. Um, I treat each person as though they didn't, they didn't have the prior wine knowledge that is required to to enter perhaps what people might perceive as a more intimidating place um, and ask people, well, what do you feel like drinking? And I think that's quite refreshing to some people. Um, there is always the opportunity to try a wine uh, before you have a glass of it or before you want to to commit to buying it um and i think that is unique in terms of of wine shops and wine bars so i am open from 2 p.m from wednesdays through to sundays on on fridays and saturdays i open a little earlier at 12 if you sit down before 9 p.m., I will accommodate you and I will probably close the doors at 10. So do come, do make sure you get in before 9 to be guaranteed uh, a glass of wine. The feedback I've had from my lovely wine community is the fact that there is a wine community here. So my regulars have made friends in a way that I never could have hoped and expected. And here, there aren't any barriers between the table. So the chances are that if you do come for a glass of wine, you will meet other people and you will become fast friends. Um, It's just a lovely environment to really be yourself and knowing yourself. And so this is... 1A Devonshire Road, just off Mill Road, opposite Scots, just before the bridge. And so please come visit Amphora. I think it's absolutely delightful and all the best of luck for the years to come. (laughs) You do sound impressive. I was very impressed and the different (laughs) wine styles was absolutely fantastic and a lovely vibe, really nice atmosphere. Certainly does sound it. Mm. It was great. And rather interrupting on Sue there, that is Green Onions, signalling the start of our job section. There are three vacancies at Finboys in Mill Road. They need waiters for Wednesday to Saturday nights and Saturday lunchtime, and a kitchen porter for Tuesdays, Fridays and Saturdays. Pop in to 2 Mill Road if you're interested. And now you'll need to be quick with this one. A full-time manager is needed for the Gorilla Kitchen Bow Bus. You must have management experience and a Category B driving licence to drive a three and a half tonne van. Chef experience is preferred, but it's not essential, as full training will be given. The pay is 35,000 plus bonuses. You can email info at gorillakitchen.co.uk. 
But as I say, be quick, okay? Because there several others have already expressed an interest. A pizza chef is needed at Aromi. Previous experience of pizza making is required. Pay us up to £12.50 an hour. Pint Shop in Wheeler Street is looking for a part-time prep chef to prepare ingredients, stocks and sauces. It's £10 to £12 per hour, plus tips, and between 10 and 30 hours a week are available. Pint Shop is also looking for a sous chef. Pay for that one is between £28 to £35,000. The Flock Cafe at Burwash Manor wants a chef. Hours are from 8am to 3.30pm, no evening shifts. They would consider splitting the job so two part-time positions are available. It's a five-day week that includes weekends. Stair in Chesterton Road is looking for a full-time cake decorator and baker based in Cambridge. Also, a full-time apprentice baker with sourdough and artisan bread a speciality. This involves twilight night shifts. Uh, they're also looking for a full-time apprentice baker for cakes, pastries and breads. Uh, to apply, send your CV with covering letter to recruitment at stir at gmail.com. Hot Numbers Bakery in Shepreth has several vacancies, a barista and in the bakery and the front of house. Full-time jobs are available in a four-day, 32-hour week. Full details in the vacancy section on the Hot Numbers website. A few quickies now. Check out the company's website or pop in at a quiet time to get more details. Chefs are needed at Browns in Trumpington Street, at the Prince Regents in Regent Street, at Bills in Green Street and Honest Burgers in Wheeler Street. And finally, a pizza chef is required at Francomanca in Rose Crescent. Pay us between £9.50 and £12.50 an hour. A vacancy for a breakfast chef exists at the Waterman in Chesterton Road. A sous chef and a commie chef are needed at the Ivy in Trinity Street. And a head chef is needed at Byron in Bridge Street. And that's it for another edition of Flavour. Don't forget that we are here on Alternate Saturdays at 12 noon, repeated on Mondays at 6pm and Thursdays at 2pm. And we will also be available via podcast in the next day or so. So, coming up on Cambridge 105 Radio this afternoon is Too Good To Be Forgotten. Steffi Callister returns at 4pm, and then at 6 o'clock it's another edition of What You Might Have Missed. So that's all from us. We will be back on the 26th of March with plenty more food and drink news, jobs and features. But until then, thanks for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.